0: Hi, I'm Heather Mulder, and I'm Janice Scrino and you're listening to Dementia Untangled, where we explore the topic of dementia through conversations with physicians, experts, and community leaders. Our discussions focus on innovative ideas,
1: practical strategies, and proven methods to guide caregivers along a
0: supportive path. Hello, and welcome to Dementia Untangled. Thank you for joining us for this episode of our podcast.
1: Today, our conversation will be with Dr. Linda Abushemi, a psychologist and chief clinical officer of Taproot, and we will be discussing utilizing technology for behavioral interventions. Janice, I know I've shared one of my first jobs out of college was working at a retirement community in an assisted living that understandably had many residents who were living with dementia. And I think of some of the complicated behaviors that I had to try to think through how to best handle them. You know, the amount of training that I received to handle them was minimal. And I I recall even actually on my very first day of work, um, working with one resident who decided that she needed to go home. And I had no idea what to do. Um, I started walking with her because I knew she couldn't head out the door on her own. But I, there was this circle drive at this community that I worked at. And I just remember walking for probably three hours that afternoon with her just in circles as she was telling me how her family um, was coming to pick her up. I had no idea how to deal with this and how to get her back inside um, and deal with the wandering that she was experiencing. You know, that was many decades ago. And if only there was an app at that time, (laughs) that could even, there was an app at all at that time. But if there was only an app that could help me with that, a psychologist in your pocket, if you will, that could help me think through How could I best help this resident feel more comfortable and get her to where she needs to be? The amazing thing is now, let's fast forward a couple decades, and there is an app for that. Ella is an AI-powered digital assistant that is helping long-term care communities to improve care for cognitively impaired individuals. It's combining person-centered behavioral interventions. I'm so excited today to have this conversation with Dr. Buscemi and learn more about this incredible advancement in supporting long-term care staff.
0: Heather, I'm looking forward to this conversation too, and I love that story that you tell, and I can only imagine how comforting to you and to It would have been if you would have had an app for that, that could have helped you and you wouldn't have had to take a three-hour walk. But today, it seems like there's an app for almost everything. And it truly, it wasn't that long ago that apps didn't even exist. And we have quickly come to take apps for granted. And I'm telling you, some apps make life so much easier with things like ordering groceries or pizza or checking the weather or finding a place of calm, listening to favorite music, uh, listening to podcasts, and those are just a few. And I'm so looking forward to this conversation with Dr. Buscemi about such a creative and innovative approach to supporting cognitively impaired individuals and professional caregivers like you were, Heather, in, income, in, in home care and long-term care communities and how Ella applies to family caregivers too. Welcome, Dr. Bushemi. Thanks for joining our conversation.
1: Thank you, thank you for having me. Before we learn more about Ella, I wanna learn a little bit more about you. Can you tell us about your journey and what led you to connect with the dementia community?
2: Yeah, definitely. But I'm a psychologist by training the last 25 years, different populations that I served. Uh, but the last probably, gosh, almost 20 years, I worked for a health plan and really saw what was happening with our with the long-term care communities uh, and our caregivers. So about 15 years ago, I became a consultant helping out long-term care communities, senior living communities, memory care units, on not treating the patient or the resident, but actually working with the staff. So we actually understood uh, they could tell me what was happening. And then we would go from there on how to better um, manage the particular resident. So we didn't see any, uh, we could prevent a reaction or at least reduce the escalation of that reaction. And so over time, I really started looking at how do we, how do we scale this and, and make it more accessible to more people?
1: That's so fascinating in combining uh, modern technology to best support staff as well. We've heard your philosophy that adverse behaviors are reactions from unmet needs. Can you tell us more about this?
2: Absolutely. This is really the foundation of just uh, my practice, but definitely with, with Taproot, uh, our company's Taproot and the, the the product is Ella. It really stems from that. So you'll hear me refer to behaviors as you might hear them, or some people call them behavioral expressions, which I agree with, I understand where that comes from. But if you think about a behavioral expression or a behavior, it's really a reaction. Someone is reacting to a situation and we have to fulfill what that reaction is coming from. So what need are they trying to fulfill that's making them or causing them to react in a certain way? And that really stems from Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which you may or may not know, but basically we always start with do you feel safe? Are you secure? Do you have enough food, right? That's once we can reach that level, then we can go up the, the hierarchy to feel, you know, safer and, you know, kind of reach that self-actualization. Well, when you have dementia or any problems thinking, because there's a lot of different kinds of neuro neurocognitive disorders where someone has problems processing um, or problems thinking is we have to understand as care partners or caregivers where that reaction is coming from. So I like saying reactions, not behaviors, because a behavior gives a connotation that someone's doing something to you. And oftentimes, if not all the time, it's not something to you. They're reacting to a situation in a way to either self-protect themselves or to get what their needs met. And, that, and so they're reacting uh, from a standpoint of, I don't know how to get what I need from you. And so I'm going to react if I can't express what I need. Does that make sense? I think it
1: makes perfect sense, and I've always kind of struggled with that term behaviors as well. I love using reactions; I think it puts it into a whole new context.
2: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, I, I, I do a lot of trainings as well, and I have a really interesting slide that you know you sometimes you have to tell people things either different ways or at different times for them to receive it. And I have one of a person touching a hot stove, and physically people get that you remove your hand from the hot stove right so it's almost like you don't sit there and think wow oh, this is really hot i should probably remove my hand right it's automatic our body's immediately hot i'm taking my hand off well emotionally and mentally we do the same thing but we but that comes out as reactions so that's kind of where i try to explain where where it's it's an automatic response of what's happening and i like how
0: you brought us back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about what are some examples of the types of needs that you are referring to?
2: Sure. So when someone, um, and we'll speak specifically about someone who has dementia, if they have a, um, and I don't like saying refusal, because oftentimes it seems like they're refusing, but really they're resisting perhaps toileting or showering or medication um, or they're trying to leave, which we sometimes in the industry call exit seeking or elopement. Right? They're just trying to leave. So with my again with masives, they're they're trying to fulfill a need. And even when you're fulfilling a need, it could be protecting oneself from conflict or protecting some, uh, from from what they feel as danger. And so when we start when we're looking at how to problem solve uh, a resistance or some kind of reaction, dementia symptom reaction. Uh, we want to start there. Are they in pain? Are they hungry? And they can't tell you, you know, is their stomach growling? You know, are they thirsty? So something's causing that reaction. And so when we start from mass and going to the bottom where people, all people, whether you have problems thinking or not, all human beings start at the very bottom. You know, we want to make sure that we have food and shelter right? And when we reach that, then we can go to feeling, you know, wanting some love or wanting self-esteem, you know, things like that. But until you meet that bottom level, it's really difficult to move up that pyramid. And so again, when you're thinking uh, about uh, working with someone who has problems thinking, you need to start from the very bottom. And then once we've identified maybe things
1: on the bottom level of the pyramid are being addressed, how do we kind of move ourselves up that that hierarchy, what sorts of needs do we look at that could maybe be the, the root behind the reaction?
2: So that could be wanting to feel loved, wanting to feel purposeful, right? So that's where we start to utilize those person-centered approaches around what did someone do for a living? What was their, their purpose? How did they make themselves feel good? What, what did they do for a living or how did they participate in their family? What were their routines? Because that helps us have gain that that sense of empathy and purpose and that self-esteem and loving and belonging as a human being um, feels and wants to feel. And so that's probably about halfway up of of the hierarchy, right? And so that's what I'm saying. You kind of look at those different areas. So if we know someone is resisting something, as an example, um, or trying to leave, let's say, we want to make sure, okay, do you feel safe, right? You kind of go from there. Are you looking for the bathroom? Are you looking for something to eat. And if those aren't the cases, then we go up around, maybe there's some purposeful or some loving aspects that we can provide to them. So asking them about what they did for a living and telling them to tell you about that, or how was it raising five kids, right? So then you kind of move up the the pyramid from, from there to try to meet those needs. I could see how thinking
1: this way, thinking through this hierarchy of needs could be really helpful to a family caregiver who's maybe running into these reactions, as you call them. I'm curious, though, what made you feel like a digital assistant would be a helpful tool in working through these?
2: Yes. So going into the communities for so often, I would go in every week. And what we would do is we would create I hate saying this, but back then I called it a behavioral plan. Uh, we call them taproot, my company calls it an approach plan because it's a how you're approaching someone and intervening. But um, you know, we would we would create those and they would stick them in a binder. And, you know, when they had the opportunity to look at it, if they remembered where it was at the nurses station, they would look at it. And that just wasn't very conducive to what we were trying to accomplish. Um, and unfortunately, what would happen is we would utilize uh, medication, psychotropic medication, which um, I absolutely believe that there are some aspects where people will need to have medication. I'm I'm not anti-medication, but I do believe that unfortunately, sometimes because we don't know what to do, we utilize those as chemical restraints. And so there are non-pharmacological approaches that we could utilize to prevent or at least mitigate the escalation of those reactions. And so... Doing this for so many years, going in out and talking to the care partners about what they were seeing, I wanted to make sure that it was easy for them to access. That was the, the very first thing. How could I pull it up and then also tell me, did the intervention that we discussed last week, right, as an example, worked? Did it work or not? And so when you're having, whether it's in the home and you have several different home care partners coming into the home or different family members, you know, helping out, or if you are in a community and you have three different shifts, you know, probably at least what, six to 10 different people a day touching the same resident, how do we know the intervention worked or didn't work? How do we know it wasn't environmental that was causing it? How do we know it wasn't the gender of the caregiver that wasn't causing the reaction? How do we know it wasn't the time of day that was causing the reaction? Ella is actually able to provide that information at your fingertips. So all the care partners have Ella to say, oh, here's the intervention. I'm walking into a situation. I know Mrs. Jones has difficulty with toileting or showering. I'm going to remind myself what to do and also the personalization of that uh, and go in and utilize that intervention. And then they actually tell us they the button that says it worked, or perhaps it didn't work. And that's just as powerful of information that it didn't work. But now, instead of me going and trying to capture as many care partners and talk to as many as I can to get the full picture, now I can look at my app and now I see what all the care partners are saying. And from there, I can decide what to do about that information.
0: Dr. Buscemi, that is absolutely incredible. I love hearing you talk about it. And I would love for you to talk to us a little bit more about help with these challenges, approaches, and benefits of non pharmacological approaches to care.
2: Sure. The first thing that we look at, uh, that I look at anyway, and I'm sure most of you look at as well, is the diagnoses. What is the actual dementia diagnosis? What is what? medical diagnoses do they have? What vision, hearing, dental, What what is their full background? Do they have a history? I actually had someone that fell off of a horse at 13 that is not in the medical record, but after doing the person-centered approach and asking the family about that person, we we realized that she fell off of a horse uh, when she was 13 and broke her clavicle. Well, the intervention was because she was hitting every time that we tried to change her clothes. But what I asked is staff, well, is she hitting you when taking off her shoes. No. When you're taking off her pants. No. Only when you take off her shirt. Yes. Okay. Well, there's, there's a data point, right? So the intervention, it took this took us about two weeks to figure out, but the intervention was, okay, let's try, because it seems like when her, you're lifting her arms above her shoulder to get her shirt off is when she's striking out. Let's try only dressing her in button up shirts or zip ups. She stopped hitting. She was in pain and couldn't tell us. So it's that type of deductive reasoning that you have to figure out. If someone has vascular dementia, that's different than Lewy bodies, that's different than Alzheimer's, that's telling us something as well, because a different part of the brain is being affected. So if it's someone vascular, especially in the mild stages, mild to moderate, it's not so much memory, of course they're forgetting, but it's more sequential learning that they're forgetting, right? So if you say, you know, mother, will you set the table? She's going to look at you like, you said it, right? She actually might get angry, right? She's reacting because she's defending herself. She can't tell you, well, honey, I don't know what that means. She's just going to say, well, you do it. But if you were to say, mother, can you put the forks down? She'll do it. Can you put the spoons down? She'll do it. So depending on that type of, um, that's why I always start with, what is the diagnosis? What is it first so we understand what part of the brain could be being affected? So we then know how to intervene.
1: I keep hearing you use the term person centered, but using something like an app, it, it feels impersonal. Going beyond the surface of the diagnosis,
2: how can this be a person centered approach? So, we actually offer a URL link that goes directly to the family members, only they have access to it. And we ask them seven pages worth of information. Is your loved one left-handed, right-handed? Do they have any trauma? What's their favorite food? What's their favorite memory? What's what are what are some irritants? What are some things we shouldn't do? So there's seven pages worth of information. And that is what helps us to personalize it. So even if let's say we didn't have that, because we did this before the app, we needed that information so that way we could alert the care partner to say, hey, if Mrs. Jones is like your example in the very beginning, she's trying to walk, walk out the door and she's trying to walk somewhere. Well, we would want to talk to them about going to work. Tell me about that. Don't say that, you no, know, you know, you don't work anymore, because that's just going to cause some issues. Feed into what they're what they're talking about. So, oh, you used to be an engineer. Tell me about that. Where did you go? Did I heard that you traveled? Right. Because now you're tapping into something that they recall and that makes them feel at ease, right? It's reducing their anxiety. So I traveled to Europe too, because I heard that you traveled for Europe for in, uh, as, a, as an engineer. Can you tell me more about that? So that's where that personalization, it actually, what it ends up doing is actually taps into their long-term memory where root comes from, you tapping into the root. So you tap into that long-term memory so they feel, uh, for, that's the personalization of it. You're tapping into it so they understand and can feel more familiar With um, you, someone who may they might not remember or know very well, so that's how we personalize. And so what the app does is actually puts it in there. So all of our interventions, we have over six hundred interventions, and we take that information that we learn from the family member or whoever knows the person best. And where the intervention calls for, let's say favorite memory, in the app itself, it will tell the caregiver, okay when mrs jones is doing x y or z this is what you should do make sure you talk about nor, uh, vacationing in northern michigan there's the person center they don't have to look for the information it's not buried in a pdf or on a nurse's station somewhere or you know they can't find a family member to ask oh i forgot what your mom did for a living or oh, what your dad did you know as as a um, you know where he traveled it's all there in the palm of your hand so it's actually providing rather than being sterile as an app might feel like or very impersonal it's actually providing the care partner more personalization than they probably ever have had because it's at their fingertips.
0: What a great explanation of that. And I know that when I use an app for maybe grocery shopping, it's so nice when it knows me already and it knows what I want and it knows what I ordered before and it makes life so much easier for me. And I can imagine how that would make life so much easier for the care partner as they're caring for the person living with dementia and how amazing it will be for that person to be able to connect and relate, you know, like about when they used to vacation in Michigan. Hmm. But I, I have a question because people know if they've listened to the podcast long, I'm very interested in the research. And so I would like to know, what does the
2: data say? H- how do you
0: know that this is working?
2: Great question. And we're so excited that we we run our analytics on a weekly basis, just because we get so many data points. If you think about, we have over a thousand people on the platform and that many more caregivers that are constantly putting in, yes, this is working. No, this is not right. That's what we're asking them. And to date, we are, our non-pharmacological interventions have over 20,000 data points and we are 86% accurate, meaning our Ella is providing a correct intervention 86% of the time, which is really, really good. To be honest, I would... I, I. I'd be cautious that it was 100 because there are interventions that are not going to work. And as a matter of fact, interventions may work for a period of time. And then as unfortunately, it's obviously a progressive disease, that intervention may no longer work at that point. So we would suspect at some point, the interventions are not going to work and we're going to have to adjust those. Additionally, what we ask is, what is the outcome of that intervention? Meaning, we don't simply ask, did it work yes or no? What we ask is, yes, did it work yes or no, but did it prevent the reaction were they easily redirected? Maybe the maybe the person didn't respond at all to that intervention, or perhaps it even escalated the reaction. We want to know that too, and our data is showing out of those uh, twenty thousand data points, over half have either prevented the reaction or uh, redirected with uh, with encouragement. They need a little redirection with encouragement, but the, the intervention actually worked. So we're continuing to get positive feedback um, that these interventions are actually working. In addition, I'll tell you one more stat because we have a lot of stats, but one more that we we obviously um, measure is medication. We we track psychotropic medications that uh, people use, oftentimes to mitigate these these reactions. And you know we know these rea- these uh, medications are sedative, which calls could cause uh, or contribute to fall risks. And our medications, we, our first uh, MVP, uh, I was going to say MVP, which is uh, a minable via product that we did uh, a couple of years ago. We were able, we showed a reduction in psychotropic medications by 13%. We just got from one of our customers uh, on the East coast in North Carolina, actually, uh, actually, he's a, a really well-known geriatrician. He actually emailed us with his testimonials that his community had a 20% reduction in psychotropic medications, because when you provide caregivers, these non-pharmacological interventions at their fingertips, you're going to see a reduction in those reactions. We've got to give them the tools to be able to better manage. They're not experts in the field and nor did they go to school to be, they're doing their best and training is incredibly important, but you know, as we all know, especially as adult learners training, when we are in a training for an hour or a week or eight hours, it's fantastic training, but we retain about 10% of that. It's really when you get on the job. Well, we are a supplement to that. We have training on Ella as well called Ella Academy, which are all under 10 minutes by design. They can keep going back to those and, and watch that three minute video on how to reduce escalation with someone toileting in addition to providing them the actual intervention itself.
1: Those are really impressive uh, data points that you're getting back from the experiences that caregivers are having with Ella. I know a lot of family members, though, there's concern when they're looking to maybe place their person into a memory care community or even bring in outside care from like a home care agency. They're concerned that their person might not receive appropriate care. I could see even just using this more person-centered application, while you're doing interventions for that individual, the team member, the staff member is adding to their their, their internal toolbox of how maybe they could work with other, other residents, other people that they're caring for. Could you talk a little bit more about how technology
2: could Help better prepare care community employees. Absolutely, you know we a couple. I have a couple points to that. Uh, one thing that we do have is because we monitor those those reactions when a, someone in a community uh, when a staff member comes into their shift, as soon as they launch the Ella app, the very first thing that they see is what their their, their fellow colleagues have have observed in their twenty four hour in their shift. And so that way I, I can walk in and say, oh, okay, John's having one of those days. He's trying to exit seek a lot. I want to remind myself what to do because it's, again, it's about the personalization of it, right? So when I say I want to remind myself what to do, it's what did he do for a living? Like all the interventions that are in Ella, I want to remind myself. So when the, when the moment is occurring and John's walking towards the door, I know exactly what to do. So we provide a lot of different kinds of features and notifications. Um, and that's one of them is really preparing that person before they even walk in on what uh, has been happening on that neighborhood in that in that area. So that's that's the first thing, and then it's really around preparing them uh, to comment whether or not the intervention is
0: working or not. This just sounds like such an amazing tool. Um, what advice do you have for our family caregivers who don't have access to a
2: professional tool like Ella? Yeah, you know uh well we're hoping to get into the consumer market very soon but in the interim you know just remember be curious I know it's probably really hard because you're used to seeing your your loved one your family member in a certain you have a certain narrative about that person right we all have narratives about each other it's it's how we know each other and so that's really difficult to kind of set back and especially when they're in and out and so it's like one minute they remember but the next minute they didn't so that's very difficult for a care partner but I, I guess I was say a a few different things is try to be curious as possible on what could be causing that reaction. Again, remember that it is likely a reaction and try to understand what's happening in the environment. Um, When someone becomes very easily frustrated, they oftentimes can't tell you why. And so it's going to come out as, you know, you do it yourself. And it comes out very angry. And really what, what that anger is really likely translated to is that they just don't know what you're saying. I would say always try to be more in the, in the past. So rather than say, you know, what did you have for lunch today, mom? I would, she would probably know what she had for lunch today during her wedding, right? So I would just try to keep, talk about things in the past and then also offer choices and brief sentences. So rather than, you know, what would you like for dinner today? Why not just limit it? Because that's, I mean, even when we ask us that, I'm like, God, I don't know. Where do we want to go to dinner tonight? We want to go to Mexican, right? So it's a lot. It's a lot to try it's to think. It's a out, lot, <laughs> right? And so just simply say, do you want chicken or steak? Just give them choices to reduce that anxiety of having to process because their processor is off. So those would probably be my my quick nuggets. This has been such an interesting
1: conversation. Before we close today, give us your final thought when it comes to utilizing technology for behavioral interventions?
2: Well, I think for now, I I don't know a lot. Um, Fortunately and unfortunately, we've done a lot of research on is there anything else out there like that? And not quite to the personalization that we're doing, not that we've that we've seen. I know you can Google things and that that's great. And that's all really great information, but sometimes certain interventions don't work. Sometimes music doesn't work for someone or it doesn't work for that particular reaction at that certain time. So I think that, you know, just checking out to see what is happening, um, trying to find companies like home care companies um, that are using technology such as ours. There, there are a lot of great technologies out there. Um to help with, you know, fall risks and tracking and things like that. The more we can utilize that, I think it's going to be helpful for for our care partners because it's it's a big job, it's a heavy job to do, especially if it's if it's a loved one. It, that just adds that layer of complexity. So the more that you can reach out to resources. Um, and utilize any technology that you can, I think it's just going to make your, your, um, I don't want to say job, because it's not really a job, but you you caring for your loved one a, a bit easier so we can avoid as much caregiver burnout, but also create a better space for your loved one to reduce their anxieties as they're going through this disease.
1: Today, our conversation has been with Dr. Linda Buscemi, a psychologist and chief clinical officer at Taproot. We appreciate you helping us untangle technology for behavioral interventions.
2: Absolutely. It's been a joy and thank you for having me.
0: Yes. Thank you so much, um, Dr. Bouchemi. It has been a joy and a privilege to have you. And of course, thank you, Heather, for another great conversation. And thank you to you, our listeners. Thank you for joining us. And if you haven't already, please subscribe and share this podcast. I'm looking forward to our next conversation on Dementia Untangled. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Dementia Untangled. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Dementia Untangled is
1: hosted by Heather Mulder and Janice Greeno, produced and edited by Amber Ayers and is brought to you by Banner Alzheimer's Institute and Banner Sun Health Research Institute. We are supported by generous donations to the Banner Alzheimer's Foundation.
0: Please visit our website at bannerhealth.com Alzheimer's and follow us on Facebook to learn about upcoming events. If you have questions or comments, please email us at dementiauntangled at bannerhealth.com.